I'm Nicholas Paul Breisowitz, Director of Strategy here at the Long Now Foundation. Today's episode is all about continuity, and specifically, the kind of continuity that lasts longer than a human lifetime, what you might call multi-generational continuity, the sort of thing you find in a very long-lived institution like a university, or, as we'll discover, perhaps even a brewery. Our speaker today is none other than Alexander Rose. As the very first employee of the Long Now Foundation, and as a lead designer on the clock of the Long Now, Alexander has spent more than a quarter century thinking about longevity, how to make things that can last. The clock of the Long Now is designed to last for at least 10,000 years. But how might we design an institution that could last that long? And when should we? These questions and more led Alexander to found the Organizational Continuity Project, a new research effort whose aim is a better understanding of long-lived institutions. Today's talk is a highly anticipated update on the past few years of Alexander's research. He has been seeking out, and is still seeking out, some of the longest-lived organizations to see what we can learn from them and about them. Who are they? Where are they? How big are they? How do they maintain continuity across generations? And what do things like fabric and mosaics have to do with all this? Before we get to those questions, though, I want to share a quick note of thanks. This research was made possible by James Anderson at Bailey Gifford and our friends at the Ethereum Foundation. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. This series and all our work is directly supported by Long Now members. If you're not already a member, please consider joining us. Sign up only takes a minute and connects you to a whole world of long-term thinking. Now, without further ado, let's learn about some long-lived institutions. Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director here at the Long Now Foundation. And today I'm gonna to be talking to you about a new research project that we've been working on called the Organizational Continuity Project. And the goal is really to start to understand uh, some of the reasons behind the longest lived organizations in terms of how they've lasted, why they've lasted, and if there's any portable lessons that we might learn as an institution that ourselves wants to become a multi-century, multi-millennial organization the Long Now Foundation was started almost 25 years ago, really to be the seed of a very long-term institution that could survive alongside some of our more iconic projects, like the 10,000-year clock that's currently under construction, or our language projects like the Rosetta Disk. We realize there really aren't kind of bodies of knowledge of creating multi-generational institutions, but there are many of them out in the world that we can learn from. So this project is hopefully us learning about how to become one of the longest-term institutions ourselves. And what you're seeing here in this presentation is the beginning of that research, where we're starting to learn about some of these oldest organizations and some of the reasons that they've, uh, that they've been able to last. It's an interesting question of why does organizational continuity matter? The thing that we keep coming to is that we, as society, discover things that are, that are really important information and stories about how to better survive something like a natural disaster. And I think an interesting example in recent times was the earthquake that started a what's now considered to be about once in century event of a major tsunami there back in 2011. And when those stories of that tsunami, the tragic story of those tsunamis was going around, this one really caught my eye. And it was a story of these tablets and markers that were found throughout Japan, some as old as 500 
100 years old or, or more, reading things like, high dwellings are the peace and harmony of our descendants. Remember the calamity of the great tsunamis. Do not build homes below this point. And tragically, many homes were built below this point. Many homes and, and property damage and lives were lost and you know, the Fukushima nuclear plant damaged. Um, all of these things because they weren't listening and didn't have the organizational continuity, even in a country that is famous for some of the best organizational continuity and maintenance in the world, such as Japan. And, you know, we're now living through one of the great examples of um, why organizational continuity might matter. It's a, you know, this global pandemic that was 100% predicted and known event was going to happen. We have within our, our own written history, many indications of it. We even had institutions that tried to prepare for this, but actually the governments didn't listen to those. And now we have this tragic response to, you know, an event that really could have been solved better by having better organizational continuity. So this, this problem is not an esoteric one. It's, a, it's one that, that really has real world consequences. And, you know, we don't want to find ourselves, you know, just a generation from now or, you know, 10 years from now looking at, you know, down the barrel of something like an asteroid impact, again, a hundred percent predictable event that we know is going to cause loss of life, um, damage to the, to infrastructure, um, could cause a total extinction level event where for the first time we're a spacefaring species that can both predict these events and stop them, but only if we're well prepared and we have the organizational continuity within our governments, our private institutions and our science community in order to solve these types of large problems. So what are some of the world's oldest institutions? One of the oldest companies that we know of is a temple construction company called Kongo Gumi, which was started at the end of the 6th century at least, and is still operating today. Now I believe it's been subsumed by a larger construction conglomerate, but they're still building temples and still largely the same kind of operations and staff. One of the oldest hotels in the world, also in Japan, the Nishiyama Onsen Keunkan, kind of a Japanese homestay, still in operation today. One of the oldest restaurants in the world, uh, built in a little after 800 AD uh, is the Stiftskeller St. Peter uh, Hotel and Restaurant. One of the oldest wineries that we know of in the world, interestingly, is the Staffelterhof Winery in Germany, built in 862, as far as we know. Some of the other types of businesses and operations that we start to see over a millennia ago um, that are still in operation are bars and pubs. So Sean's Bar in Ireland is said to have been built in 900 AD. The other thing that we start to see in the 11th century is the invention and proliferation of universities. So we have things like the University of Bologna, and uh, soon afterwards, the University of Oxford, and then many of the other universities in, in the UK and other parts of Europe really start to proliferate. More recently, we are, are seeing some more commodity type things like the Poland salt mines in Weliska, starting in the 13th century, and then even paper companies like the Storienzo uh, Finnish Paper Company in 1288. But you'll notice that not only are many of the oldest organizations in the world in certain areas like Japan and, and old world Europe, um, but also they tend to be a ton of breweries, winemakers, uh, confectionaries, in some cases, hotels, organizations that serve basic human needs. One of the other things that you start to see when you look at uh, aggregates of companies that, for instance, last for more than 200 years, a huge majority are in Japan. So this idea that location matters, even though Japan has risen and fallen 
and had lost wars. They've, their basic system of government and culture has lasted over time. And, and the other places like Old World Europe and Germany and Holland and France are some of the other places that we see some of the longest lived institutions. And so the other thing that you start to see is that 90% of the companies that are over 200 years old also have less than 300 employees. Now, if you look at more modern companies like the Fortune 500 companies, uh, another very interesting thing starts to appear. One is that they're kind of financial service companies. There's kind of universal services that people have needed over the past few centuries. But if you also look at how long companies are lasting on the Fortune 500 list, it used to be in 1950 that all the companies on the Fortune 500 list averaged at about 61 years old. If you look at that data now, that's actually less than 18 years that these companies are surviving. So these are not mega companies. They're not the largest companies or organizations in the world. They're the ones that have figured out a niche and a market size and a size of their company that can last over centuries at a time. The thing that comes out of this data, if your only goal is growth, especially as a company, it's very difficult for you to last for a long time. You kind of outgrow all of your resources and all of your customers. Of the thousand companies that we know of that are over 300 years old, as I mentioned, there's a huge section of this is in the alcohol industry by a lot, um, the hotel industry and restaurant and food, food service industry, all of which are kind of in a way kind of the same market. Um, and then as you get down into this, you start to find things like pharmaceutical companies, financial companies. You also find things like libraries and universities. So I think libraries are very interesting because they are the place where civilization stores its information to help it understand problems of the past, solutions for the future. And they are the memory institution of our cultures. And if you look at some of the oldest libraries in the world that are no longer in operation, they're all largely in the Middle East. But because of the historical turns of the world, we lost many of those cities and libraries. And those libraries go back as far as, uh, you know, almost 4,500 years in some cases, you look at the libraries that are still in operation and that, that whole center has moved to Europe. And that's because the organizational continuity within Europe survived a lot of those wars. And so we still have that information. We're able to, um, we're able to, to um, access it. We tend to have those languages more than we have the languages of those ancient libraries. Some of the other oldest institutions that we have in the world are universities, um, the oldest of which are at least one one of the oldest is the University at Bologna, Italy. It uh, was started in the 11th century. I think what's interesting about these is that they have this property of a new influx of students every single year. And that cycle of students, this brings new energy into the institution, but it also means that that institution has to make itself relevant to a different set of people every single year. So the, you know, the, the universities that have lasted have done a very good job of this. Their commodity is this universal one of education, but the way that they do it has to be remarketed to every single year of student that they have. That's helped them last for a long time, but it's also helped remind the institution why it matters, why it's relevant. What are some of the other ways that things have lasted for a very long time? One is to, uh, is to have taken a very long time to have been built. Um, and we've mentioned religion before here as one of the longest lasting institutions in the world, but one of their structures that they create are cathedrals. Uh, and cathedrals have this interesting property is that many of them took decades, if not centuries, to, to build. And you know, one of the oldest ones, the cathedral at Cologne, uh, Germany, was started in 1248. It took 600 years to build this cathedral. The most dangerous time 
you find is for something to last is really just a generation or two after it was first built or founded. And that's because you know, it's the institution or the, the cathedral of your of the last generation, and it's no longer in fashion. Often people find you know, a different use for that, that property. Um, but if you take, let's say, 600 years to build it, by the time you're done, it already has a different type of value to civilization. It's a thing that has value for its antiquity and its cultural uh, kind of knowledge um, and relevance. And you know, we see this now with even modern cathedrals that aren't even done. So the, the Sagrada Familia Cathedral in Barcelona um, was begun in 1882. We're now almost 140 years into its construction progress, and it's not done, but it's already a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And there's probably few examples of this in the world, but if it lasts long enough, even in its build process, it can become valuable to, to a civilization and that civilization can then help it last. In fact, the, the tickets that get sold to come into this thing are the, really the way that it's being funded to get completed. In Japan, we also find things like the oldest continuously standing wooden structures. These temples at Nara, Japan, were started in 607 AD, and they have survived all kinds of um, influxes of government and other societies and even other religions to this day, really because of slow, careful maintenance. The roofs were kept intact. Um, the main timbers are still the main timbers, but they've replaced little bits and pieces of the outsides over time, and they've allowed them to last. And they, in turn, have helped the institution last over the same kind of time frame. Another example, only a couple hours away by train, um, but a very different strategy are the, um, the Ise shrines in Japan. And these uh, date back almost two millennia ago. And these temples are built in, a, in an interesting way that they're not built out of very long lasting materials. Then they're not necessarily themselves maintained from year to year, but they're rebuilt um, in exact copies of each other in alternating sites. And so you can see an image of these temples every 20 years where the old one is now being deconstructed and the new one is being constructed. I was lucky enough to be there about eight years ago for the rebuilding of the last temple when the, the now princess of Japan moves the, the kind of cultural treasures from one to the next. And so you have the master builders who are in their 80s. The last cycle of this 20 years ago when they were in their 50s or 60s, they were the mid-level master builders. And then you have people in their 20s and 30s who are the new builders, all of them learning how to rebuild this temple. And in turn, I think helping that cultural institution itself by reminding that cultural institution of the reasons it exists and all of the rites and rituals that go along with that. If we get out of the institution category and look for some examples in other areas, we start to see communities of practice, for instance. We have evidence of martial arts being documented back as far as 5,000 years. And that these communities of practice are not necessarily formal organizations, but they do have a storytelling tradition, again, from master to apprentice, that has kept that information around for a very long period of time. So one of the things that you have to look at if you're trying to build an institution or organization that's going to last for hundreds or even thousands of years is really some of the larger demographic trends. I think often when we look at things like population growth, which are you know, closely tied in a lot of ways to how you know, kind of growth economics and how institutions are judged on growth, is that 
you know, when you look at just the next 30 or 40 years, you have this, you know, asymptotic kind of hockey stick graph going off into trillions of people, which, you know, obviously this world isn't going to support. And we're going to have uh, limiting factors of resources and things like that that are going to start to bring population down. In fact, when you look at some of the projections around population, they all start coming down around the next 50 years. And, you know, in nature, we see this all the time where you have a top level predator, their population goes up as their amount of prey goes up. And then as they eat, eat those resources, then the, the predator population falls along with the prey population. And so we're clearly going to be going through some cycles like this. So how can we build new institutions and organizations that are just as good at living in a world of less people in markets that are smaller and really be able to shrink but not totally die off? And so when you look at these small hotels or breweries um, or even smaller commodity companies, the ones that are going to survive and that have already survived, survived famines and uh, volcanic eruptions and huge changes in market and wars and, and, and all of these things. They've all found a way to survive those. And I think one of the things that I really want to do is start to understand each of those um, so that some of those may be you know, not very portable lessons, but I'm hoping that many of them are portable lessons that we can look at for creating new institutions that can last for a very long time. What's also important is to kind of understand culture and value systems. Um, we don't want every institution in the world to last for a long time. There are bad things that can be perpetuated. We've had you know, empires that have been you know, horribly oppressive that have lasted for a long time. In the last century, we had, um, we had Hitler and the Nazi Reich, who you know, Hitler literally intended to set up a thousand year Reich. And I think we're all glad that these institutions <laughs> did not last. It's always worth thinking about the values, what institutions should last. Some, are, you know, some companies and institutions should be fast churn, and we should learn a little bit from them, and they should be replaced by ones that are, that are more important for us. Um, and it's very important to kind of think about that as we're trying to think about how to build some of the longest lived institutions. So in nature, we have some examples of ways that, that organisms last for uh, very long periods of time. There's clonal species, such as the manzanita bushes or aspen tree groves. These are species where the individuals themselves die out, but their, their DNA is replicated through root structures of them being continuously reborn. And these can slowly adapt to things like climate and move up a hillside or down a hillside to help its climate so they're not fixed to a very specific location but have a chance to kind of move around a little bit and respond to climate and change. And also if you know, an animal or a human cuts down one of them, they have this chance to live on as at least their kind of basic DNA programming code. And these can last for longer than 10,000 years. I think they have some of these that they suspect are over 40,000 years old. And the last example is one of my favorites. It's a single individual organism that can last for as long as 5,000 years. And it's the bristlecone pine. And these trees are found in some of the highest mountains here in North America. And what's interesting to me about these is that they, the idea of them was postulated before they were discovered. So as people started to core some of the oldest trees in the world, they found that the ones in the worst environments were the longest lived ones. And in fact, when they went into the White Mountains and then the Snake Range in Nevada and California, they cored these trees that are, live well above normal tree line and found that some of these individuals last as long as 5,000 years. So by living in an adverse environment, they have a really kind of high immune response to change. 
So one of the things that does keep coming up in my research uh, is that there seems to be often in some of these oldest companies and organizations, um, a person who tells the stories and connects the generation to generation within companies and organizations. In some places that's, that's highly cultivated like the temples in Japan, but in some places it's very informal. And, and sometimes it's a, you know, it's a parent of a founder or um, even you know, in some cases like a janitor who's, who's been there for decades and tells the stories of how certain things survived in the past. And sometimes they're the person that you know, remembers the last plague or the last war and can remind current management uh, what, what they did during that time in order to weather it. Or if the management is, let's say, proposing a new project, this person might remind them, oh, you know what, we tried that and it really didn't work. And maybe it could work now with new tools in a new time, but here's why it didn't work then. And so many of these institutions kind of have this have this person, and um, I think one of the places that I found that it's interestingly, um, you know, very formalized is in some of the cathedrals in Europe, like Salisbury Cathedral, which has been around uh, for over 800 years, and they have a person there whose title is called the Keeper of the Fabric, which is kind of my favorite title for these uh, type of people. They have you know roles of keeping track of the finances and, and basic administrative tasks, but they also have this role of really kind of bridging generational conversations. And in fact, I think what's interesting about the Salisbury Cathedral is that the oldest continuously operating clock is the tower clock that's in that cathedral, and that Keeper of the Fabric's their job, one of their their jobs is to, to help make sure these things are maintained between some of the wars and difficult financial times or technical failures that it has to recover from. We might imagine how keepers of the fabric could be cultivated in the institutions that we have in the world to help them last. These keepers of the fabric can, in some cases, mean the difference between life and death. An amazing counterexample to the very first one I started this talk with are the Sentinelese tribes of the Andaman Islands in the uh, Indian Ocean. And these tribes are, are, are small, a few thousand people, but they have had these kind of keepers of the fabric to tell uh, oral traditional stories over as many as I think what we now know to be about 60,000 years. Their island was heavily affected by the 2004 tsunami um, off the coast of Indonesia that wiped out you know, huge chunks of modern culture. And when the anthropologist arrived at this largely uh, fishing uh, kind of sustenance village, assuming that it was gonna be wiped out in these islands, they found them totally intact. And they asked them, you know, how did you survive this tsunami? And they said, you know, this is a tribe that's, that's been on these islands for over 60,000 years, an African diaspora tribe for 60,000 years. And they have a, a, a totally oral storytelling tradition that's helped along by shamans and chiefs and, and storytellers within their communities that said when the, when the, when the water recedes, just like it does in a normal wave cycle, that it's always gonna come back and eat at least an equal amount. And so when they saw the water receding during the, the beginning, the antecedent to the last tsunami, they ran for the hills. Whereas you saw people in modern day Bangladesh and Indonesia standing on the beach with cell phones, filming the water going out, not thinking that it was gonna have this reciprocal effect. Um, so it was this very old knowledge, these keepers of the fabric that helped save life 
save property, save and save culture um, over time. And I think the question is, you know, who are the keepers of our fabric? Um, I think you know, private organizations and religions, interestingly, kind of have these um, more than others. Um, I think you know, a lot of our cultural institutions, like libraries um, and museums, are kind of hit and miss on this. Um, governments generally are pretty bad at this, but we can imagine that you know, we certainly want government data, like birth and death records, um, government data from you know, the World Health Organization from this pandemic to the next. We want that information to survive. Um, I think of, uh, the last example I'll give is, is of, a, of, a, of a good example and the story of kind of a hero of the keeper of the fabric um, who was unappreciated in his time in another city in Japan. And it was a mayor, it was a 10-term mayor uh, in this city um, who's, who was dead long before the last big tsunami. And he actually, he pulled together government resources and funding to build this, you know, actually fairly ugly, massive 51-foot seawall pretty high in a city that's pretty far away from, from the ocean, much further away than other ones were. And he was ridiculed and told that, you know, that this was a waste of money and that it didn't look good. Um, and this, this seawall was closed just in time to save the city from the last, uh, from the last tsunami, well as cities all around it who had only built, you know, uh, seawalls that were 30 feet tall um, were wiped out. In fact, the seawalls basically helped keep the water in once the, once the water came over them. And it was because this mayor had, a, had cultural memory from tell, the stories that were told to him by his elders, and he kept it relevant. He had enough power within government and respect um, and length in government to build something that nobody else would ever have the kind of uh, cultural power um, and social power and economic power to do. Um, so we can all, I think, take these examples and um, try and figure out what institutions we want to last for a long time, what is the type of information that we want to last for a long time, and who are we going to have within these institutions and how are we going to empower them to be the keepers of the fabric to make sure that we survive the, the kind of the difficulties of the calamities that we might live through, and more than that, really thrive and have, an, have a civilization that can last in the next 10,000 years, hopefully better than we have in the last 10,000 years. So with that, thank you so much. Um, again, this is the beginning of research in this area. I hope to come back and uh, report back, uh, especially as I start talking to many more individuals in these institutions about uh, how, what else I'm learning, uh, the much more portable lessons uh, of these institutions and how they might help the institutions that are important to us going forward. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Xander. I am so impressed about how much you've already learned when you say you're just starting. Um, it will be amazing what you can do once you begin to actually dive into this. There was tons of stuff that was new to me. Are you, I'm like, it seems now in retrospect, almost an obvious question to ask, but um, was has there been very much other research like this or anyone else going around asking this question? That's a really good question. I mean, the, the reason, you know, I 
started on this project was really because um, you know we needed to solve this in a way for ourselves. We were the first use case, and I thought that there was going to be books and a body of knowledge and you know experts that we could go call um, for the Long Now Foundation to figure this question out. Uh, it was just like it was amazingly blank. Um, it was so it was, a, it was a really wide open space. I was like, all right, well, I guess now this is now our research project, and and um, it seemed a reasonable place for us to do it. There was a, a really interesting uh, author collective called the Dark Angels Collective that st that wrote a book called um, Established, and it's stories of at least 12 of, of some of the oldest uh, companies in the world. Uh, and there's certainly these lists that I've been con concatenating um, of both, you know, organize, you know, regular organizations um, and companies that... Um, to kind of figure out which ones are there, but um, but it's it, it's very interesting when you have to then contact them and the and the even the modern the the modern management of a lot of these organizations and companies they don't have a lot of introspection around how that's worked. Um, they're very focused on the now, which is you know is relative. You know, also, I was starting this project at the beginning of the pandemic, so they were extremely focused on the now um, at that moment. But it's uh, it's been interesting how how not necessarily introspective they all are. Yeah, that, that was uh, one of the things I was wondering as you were speaking was, were most of these institutions or organizations even aware of their special age? And if they were, did they have any theories themselves about why they were long-lived? Well, uh, I think it varies a lot, and I, you know, I don't want to generalize too broadly, especially after you know not talking to tons of them. But you know, anecdotally, from the beginning of this, um, certainly, you know, they all kind of really old organizations are often, you know, they kind of brag about how old they are, um, and they, that's part of their kind of story. But the um, and their internal, you know, organizational mythos. But um, I find it interesting how, like, when I one of the things questions I came back to people was like, "How did you survive the last pandemic?" This is only 100 years ago, which in all you know many of these companies are over a thousand years old or, or organizations. And they're like, oh, that's a really good question. I have no idea. And uh, so, they, you know, even for something that they were in the middle of trying to figure out how to resurvive, um, they had not asked that question. Uh, and so um, it's, uh, it's interesting. One of, the, one of the funders of this project is James uh, Anderson of Bailey Gifford. Um, and, and he had already looked at, for instance, the, the way he, had, he found that out was looking at the public uh, the public reports, the kind of annual reports of the company um, around that time, and it's just he said it was wild when when people were um, that those reports, you know, as the pandemic was unfolding, they they kind of they don't even mention it in these in these reports until it's like really a bad problem. And it's kind of very similar to the beginnings of of this one. So um, it was interesting that that it was very similar problems that were being repeated very very in real time. And again, to your first approximation on this very initial look at it, um, do you did you find it that there were other advantages to this kind of long livedness besides survival? I mean, other than the fact that they were surviving, were there anything else about them? Were they surviving at a better profit rate, or was it um, you know their metabolism different, or was there anything else about them that you could kind of detect that might be a, a possible theory? Well, there, there seems to very much be an internal culture um, thing where the the kind of employees are prepared 
mentally for this, and this management is prepared mentally for this. Where um, you know, I think we saw this, for instance, play out the, in the opposite way at the beginning of the last you know big dot com crash, where the the employees were in no way, and the management was in no way prepared to shrink their company by even twenty percent, much less sixty percent. You know, you saw, and they weren't ready to reinvent themselves. So you know, we saw you know the music industry and during the time of, of music becoming a digital commodity that and a subscription service that you know but there was you could talk to people within the music companies themselves and every single one of them knew that their model was not going to survive what it was but they could not kind of they couldn't they didn't culturally have the internal story to fix that they you know they sold music on plastic circles that's what they did and it took apple and you know eventually you know other things like napster forces to basically just take that away from them um, and and so um, it's 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 very important it seems to have developed a company or organizational culture that you you know you prepare people and and, um, and it was there's jeff bezos who who told me you know about talking about amazon who said you know as the stock price was doubling, I told everyone that you know they weren't twice as smart as they were last quarter. And when the stock price goes down, you're not twice as dumb as the last quarter. We're just you know we have to keep making the company that 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 uh, that has a real business model, and we just keep doing the thing. And so I think that engendering that is is seems to be one of the most important things. Yeah. So I, I, I want to um, bring in another a questioner. Um, I'm going to introduce um, Nick Bryce. Um, Bryce Sowitz, who is the um, director of development for Long Now, and um, Nick, you have some questions. Yeah, thanks so much, Kevin and Xander. This was a fantastic talk. I've been looking forward to this for a while um, because it's such relevant research to so many different institutions. You had already mentioned that uh, James Anderson with Bailey Gifford had you know, proudly supported the work that you're working on, as has the Ethereum Foundation. Um, and I just think there's a broad there's a broad application for the kinds of ideas you're running into. I'm, I'm curious about this idea of continuity as memory. And then memory kind of is something that's permanent. But I'm wondering if uh, you've run into situations where the continuity of an organization or the continuity of a practice has been served by a kind of selective forgetting. If there are instances you've run into where people have decided what to leave behind because circumstances have changed or because their goals have changed. Um, so how, have you run into anybody who's deciding how do we decide what to remember and what to forget? Well, I think it's, it is really interesting. Um that question of like how and but i think it's maybe different than you phrase the question at least from what i've seen is that you you don't want you don't want the the people that are running your organization so hung up on the way things have been done in the past that they can't welcome in another generation usefully that they can't listen to the fact that there are new tools there are new markets there are new situations in the world that that is and that is possible for a company to retry an idea they might have tried a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, um, in a new environment with new tools. And so, if they can't do that, I think that's 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 almost as problematic as not having those stories to tell themselves. So, um, finding the way to to be able to have at least it seems about three generations within an organization that's talking to itself and each other in a productive way that knows how to discern that. You know. You don't want you don't want a generation basically saying, oh, you know, if, in even even a current generation, if there's if if they have seen how how they that organization or even other organizations maybe have failed at something over and over and over again, they might not try the new thing. 
Um, and so how do you, how do you temper that information in a way that says, all right, well, maybe we're different now. Um, and it's worth trying. So I think that that seems to be, um, an interesting question of how best any organization can listen to its youngest members to find some of the kind of new energy of the world, the new things that might be happening in the world, the middle generation to interpret that and the oldest generation to be giving some of that wisdom and, and put those things together in a way that, that doesn't hamper the organization, but also helps it answer those questions going forward. That's a great idea. The, the multi-generationality of a continuous organization is probably one of the cooler cooler aspects of getting people to kind of pass the baton back and forth across time. And I understand that you actually have had a chance to check out a number of different archives, you know, because, of course, Long Now is involved in some very special archiving projects. But then specifically, um, I'm thinking of an, a long-lived organization like the Catholic Church. Um, have you been able to talk to them at all about how they maintain a continuous thread going all the way back through their history? Um, well, I, I was uh, very lucky enough to, to visit the Vatican archives at one point, and the um, the the interesting. So I, I don't have a broad story from all levels of the Vatican, but at least from the Vatican archives, um, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, the Catholic Church is famously one of the oldest currently extant organizations on the planet at, at about two thousand years almost, um, and the 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 thing that. Um, and the Vatican archives themselves are, are amazing in their own right. But uh, when I was getting the tour, I walked by this one room that um, that had all these really thin drawers in it, and there was all these guys in in like these little white suits picking things out of the drawers. And it was actually it was the Vatican was in the process of closing down for Easter Mass, which is a rare moment that that the main basilica is closed. Um, and so all these guys were picking out um, tiles uh, for maintaining the um, the mosaics of the of St. Peter's Basilica. And it turns out that over 500 years ago, when they commissioned the mosaics, they also commissioned the artists to do overruns. And, and famously, the artists in the records of that complained that they had to do overruns of all these colored tiles and they're like why do you know we'll we'll just we'll just do it whenever you want it and they're like no we want we want them on hand and so f for over 500 years they've been able to grab these tiles and and repair and sure enough as we were walking out of St. Peter's Basilica there was they had erected all these uh, scaffolds and were you know replacing all of these tiles in the mosaic. So not necessarily textual um, thing uh, records but these kind of physical records that um, that this organization had thought you know, hundreds of years in, in advance to basically to solve what would be an, an totally unsolvable problem, or at least a very difficult to solve problem, um, that it was very easy for them to, in a way, ask for that at the beginning, as long as they had the continuity of the organization to, you know, keep them in the drawer, label the drawer properly, <laughs> and, and remember it, uh, you know, 500 years in advance. So I think it was, I think it was a great example of that. So um, thanks, Nick. So some great questions. So um, Stuart himself had, had a good question, which was, in this research, was there anything that surprised you that maybe um, you were not expecting when you set out? Well, I think, I mean, I mentioned it towards the end, which is this keeper of the fabric role, um, and it's not formalized. And so I think, I think it's a very interesting lesson for, for any organization, like how do you formalize this, at least in a way where maybe you just give them an honorific that they, they kind of feel the importance of of that um, storytelling part, and you know, 
really the oldest thing, the oldest thing we have for conveying knowledge is storytelling. And so it's, it's, it's the thing that we know can and will last for a very long time. But um, how we tell those stories uh, within organizations, I think, is an interesting question. Right. And it seems like most of what you've seen so far has been kind of oral transmission rather than anybody kind of writing it down, except for maybe those stones in Japan. So that oral tradition, but maybe what we're looking for is a, a different mechanism besides an oral transmission. Yeah, and I think the the other interesting thing that I have found that is kind of surprising is that the when you go and you look up the the official history of some of these organizations, because um, they all kind of, you know, on their website or somehow, you know, they're talking, bragging about how long they've been around. They have this very official history that has that really is very bad at telling the, the bad stories, which are really the stories that you need to understand to have an organization last. Like, I'd want to know how that organization survived the pandemic 100 years ago. I want to know how they survived the plague, you know, 600 years ago. I, and these are, the, these are the stories I want to know. And they, they basically, they just gloss right over it. And they're like, well, this is, you know, here's how we did all these things great. Um, and clearly those, you know, those were problems for, for these organizations, uh, and, and their lessons are valuable that are, they're just, they, they're either not documented, even their formal internal hit some company, you know, some companies have informal inter internal historians, but they, you know, you ask them that question like, oh, well, we'll go, let's see if we can look this up. And <laughs> they, they tend to not be well-recorded times. I think mostly because people are, they're scrambling during those times. It's probably it's the most difficult time to take time to make records. Um, and when they're coming out of them, they're really thinking forward, not thinking backward. Um, so um, I think it's an interesting question in general of how we can be better at this. And I think I mentioned the WHO, the World Health Organization, that you know they have collected and CDC have collected amazing information about the current pandemic that we're in. But how how is that being preserved for the next one that could be a hundred or more years out. I, I don't know. The Long Now Foundation itself is now 25 years old. We think of ourselves in our first quarter, a quarter being a quarter century. Um, you've done this research. What have you come back to take back from that to change the way that you want to run the Long Now Foundation as its director? What is there a specific lesson that you thought, hmm, we really should do here. This 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 is something that that we should be doing. The thing that has come out of this research, in a way, it was you know, it was inspired by these temples that are rebuilt every twenty years in Japan. Is this you need to ha I think formalize a refreshing cycle where the generation that you know after twenty five years, it's roughly you know a human generation in a way, is is says all right, well, what DNA do we want to bring with us, and what. And how do we want that to instruct the next 25 or 20 or you know whatever it is, whatever your cycle is? Um, how do we want that to instruct but not limit? Um, and so we want it, you know, we want that. That's what we're kind of doing right now at Long Now at 25 years is, you know, the founders had a, you know, came from a time, you know, started in the mid 90s. It was a very optimistic technological time, um, and you know, it's certainly become a less optimistic technological time now. Um, but how do we how do we take that DNA, make it inspiring to another generation, um, but not over limit that problem? Because so, you want new people to come in who are interested in solving new problems. Um, what is the next 10,000 year clock project? The next Rosetta project? Um, that is going to be really interesting as we finish some of these other projects, and that's that to me is the big challenge: is, is not becoming too too limiting in the information we hand off, um, but giving people enough framework that they feel empowered to do new and amazing things. You often talk about trusting the future. 
in, in a certain sense. And, and that seems like part of what you want to do with a long-lived institution is in some ways transmit that trust forward and that faith in the next generation. Indeed. I think, I mean, trusting the future, I think that's a key kind of both preserving optionality and trusting the future is something that has has really emerged over the whole time that we've been at Long Now is that if you're making any decisions that that l- limit the next generations more than than open possibility for them you're probably not helping that generation like you they are going to have more information about their their present than you could ever predict about you know from as a futurist um, so how can you how can you make choices that don't take away their optionality is uh, seems to be a really important principle well, well Xander I wish you and we all wish you the best of success in your investigation and trying looking at this systematically. Thank you so much. Well, as you know, it's obviously it was great to be on the other side of the chair for uh, for one of these talks. And uh, thank you for hosting. And um, looking forward to some of the future talks at Long Now. It was fun to present here. This is Nicholas Paul Breisowitz again, and if you enjoyed this talk, please consider becoming the newest member of the Long Now Foundation. All of our work here, everything from the talk you just heard to the human language archive that is currently resting on the surface of Comet 67P, is entirely supported by members and friends like you. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Visit longnow.org to learn more. Before we wrap up, though, I want to say a big thank you to all of our speakers, listeners, members, and sponsors. Today's music comes from Cast Music. You also heard the bells from Brian Eno's January 7003, an album that was created as part of our work in building the clock of the long now. None of this would be possible without our production team. Daniel Engelman, J.D. Davis, Andrew Warner, Forrest Pound, Justin Oliphant, Shannon Breen, and Casey Kripe. I also want to thank our entire staff at the Long Now Foundation for making these conversations possible. I'm Nicholas Paul Breisowitz, and you're the kind of person who listens to podcast credits, which is honestly super awesome. Thank you, and until next time.